Well, it has been award season in Hollywood, so it seems like every Sunday night there's some other award show that's been going on. Uh, recently, we had the Oscars, and the, the thing to do for the, the, these award shows, it's not so much about who wins what, but it's more about who wears who, right? It's, so, so the big deal is the red carpet, and, and when I think of red carpet, I think of this, this narrow red carpet that goes down the aisle with the paparazzi taking pictures, but, but here's a picture from, from what, what the red carpet really looks like. They just take over the entire street, and it is this big parade of people walking into a venue. That, that's it. They're walking into a venue, and, and that's the exciting thing. They're, they're walking into this show, and, and they're wearing these special outfits, and, and everybody wants to know what, is, what, what they're wearing and who they're with or who they're not with, and, um, and, and this is the big show, right? This is the, what entertains us as we see this glamorous entrance of our American idols. And so we are in chapter 23 of the story, and we are seeing Jesus come in on the scene. And as we saw last week, Jesus did not come in on a red carpet. He did not come in with everybody noticing. He came in in the simplest of forms. He came in as a baby. And a baby born to a, a poor family in a poor part of the country. Not glamorous at all. And this is the entrance of the Savior of the world. And in chapter 23, we have Jesus coming in to his ministry. And he is not born in a glamorous way, and he does not come into his ministry in a glamorous way at all. And so the, the story of chapter 23 gives us this, this overview of Jesus' start to ministry. And we start with this interesting character, John the Baptist, right? He's this this scruffy hippie that lives out in the, in, the, in the desert, right? He is just this odd character, and he's out in the desert declaring this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so here is this odd fellow that is declaring this message, this message of repentance, this message of the kingdom, and there is no paparazzi, there is no red carpet, there are no cameras, there is no press. And here is the entrance of Jesus into his ministry. And John is this fascinating character because John denies being anything special. He is not the Messiah. He is not a prophet. He is not anything special. He is simply a voice declaring this message, laying the way for Jesus. He points to Jesus, and he's calling the people to repent. He's calling them to clear out any of the obstacles that get in the way of them following Jesus. He's, he's calling them to get rid of the things in their lives that don't allow them to see Jesus or receive Jesus. He's calling them into a preparation of both heart and life. And so he is more like the movie trailer that is drawing our attention to the blockbuster hit. He is not the feature film himself, but he is the one pointing to that feature film. And so the people flock to him, the crowds build, they are confessing their sins, and John baptizes them. 
And so we have spent 21 weeks in the Old Testament looking at the promises of God and the messages of the prophets who are calling the people into reconciliation with God. And so it gives us this incredible context to see who this man John is and the message that he has. He is making this profound statement that that after 400 years of nothing from God, here is a brokenness in the silence. That a message is coming through, a voice is coming through. God is speaking to us once again. And as odd as he is, he is about to introduce us to God's solution to restoring man with God, to restoring that relationship. The kingdom is near. God's promise of the Old Testament is now coming to pass in Jesus. And so Jesus is one of the ones that comes to John, and he is baptized. Jesus submits himself to this process, and and when he comes up out of the water, the heavens are split open, the Spirit of God descends on him, and there's a voice from God that comes in and makes it very clear who this guy is. This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And so in this moment, God speaks. The silence is broken, and through him, this is very clear to the people who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. There is no question who this man is. God identifies him for himself. And this The first one to reveal who Jesus is, is God himself. And so, this is one of the few times where we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, all together in one scene. Because we have God speaking, we have the Spirit descending, and here Jesus is being baptized, being identified by God. And so then the Spirit leads Jesus out into the desert for 40 days of temptation where where he is fasting and Jesus is hungry, he's vulnerable, he's weak, and, and Satan tries to come in and tempt him. And the devil works to distract Jesus and tear him down and and cause him to lose vision of his purpose, lose vision of his calling, lose vision of why he is doing what he's doing. The enemy uses this attack on Jesus, but Jesus defends himself with what? Not with weapons, but with the word of God. He defends himself with scripture. In the New Testament, Paul calls this the sword of the Spirit. It's a sword. It's it's something to be used for defense. It's something that is given to us to defend ourselves from the attacks of the enemy. In Hebrews, it says, For the the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus knows the weapons of defense against the devil. He knows what to use. He, He knows Scripture. And this is why it's so important for us to know what the Word says, for us to memorize Scripture, to know it, to be able to use it in our defense as we're attacked by the enemy. The enemy comes in with lies. He comes in with deceit. And if you know the truth, then you can battle Satan in that. And so we use the sword 
to defend ourselves in the same way that Jesus defends himself. And so we see in the narrative here that Jesus is baptized, Jesus faces temptation. He receives his identity from God through that baptism, and then he battles and overcomes the temptation of Satan, and now he's ready for his public ministry. These are the prerequisites for him getting into ministry. He's baptized. He receives identity from God, and he battles and overcomes the temptation of Satan. And so John makes it clear that he is not the Messiah, but Jesus is. And as John is speaking to the people, he quotes from Isaiah. And this is, we, we've been going through the prophets. We, we see these stories and we know what they have been anticipating. We know that they, what they have been looking forward to, what they have been disobedient to, and what they've been obedient to. We've, we've read through the stories of captivity and coming back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple and trying to reinstate the law. And, and John says this, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And so the people around him, especially those leaders of the religious institution, they, are, they, they know very clearly what these words mean. They know these words of Isaiah. They know what it, what it means. John is making an incredible confession, an incredible statement of who Jesus is. And so the next day he sees Jesus passing by and he points to Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. He testifies to the, the baptism of Jesus and to the witnessing of the Holy Spirit coming down on him. And so no Jewish person would have heard that and missed the significance of what it is that Jesus is saying. He is the Lamb. He is the Lamb. What did they do with lambs? What's the significance of that statement? Because in the Old Testament, it was only the young, unblemished, innocent lamb that could be used as a sacrifice to atone for sin. And so John points to Jesus and says, that is the lamb, that is the innocent one, that is the unblemished one, that is the one that will atone for our sin. He will be the one that sacrificed. And so John is making incredible statements here. He is announcing to the world that Jesus is the ultimate lamb. He's the lamb of God, the final sacrifice for our sins. And so there's no doubt that John claims Jesus, what, who John claims Jesus to be. He's God's chosen one. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that we have been waiting for. He's the one that we have been anticipating and so followers of John heard this confession, and they become followers of Jesus. Because Jesus is the one to follow. Andrew's one of them. He follows. He's excited that they have discovered who the Messiah is. And so he goes to his brother Simon and, and asks him to come in and come and see this guy. We have found the Messiah. And, and Simon comes in, and Jesus renames him Peter. And says, on this rock I will build my church. And so Jesus invites them to follow him. Philip does the same thing. He, he comes and sees, and he sees who Jesus is, and he follows Jesus, and then he goes to his buddy Nathaniel and says, look, we found the Messiah, and Nathaniel's skeptical. He doesn't know. Is this really the Messiah? 
But he's convicted enough by what his friend says that he goes and looks at Jesus and sees Jesus and has an encounter with Jesus and experiences something there and he believes as well. And he becomes a follower. Jesus then heads to a wedding celebration in Canaan. We know this story, right? Where there's this big wedding celebration. And this is where we see the first miraculous sign of Jesus. Of all places, it's at a party and they run out of wine. And so Jesus produces more wine. This is his first miracle. We won't make many more connections there. (laughs) But I think it is interesting. As I read through it this time, I was struck. I'd never seen this before. But the jars that that he filled with water that turned to wine, they were the jars that were used for ceremonial washings. These were religious tools that they used for ceremonial washing. So for those who were impure, they had to be washed in the water of these jars. And these are the jars that Jesus used to transform into wine. And so he's from the very beginning making some sort of transformation, some sort of statement on what the religious establishment is and what it's to become. So they encounter, um, they go on from, from this party and lots of wine, and they encounter Nicodemus, where Jesus teaches this, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. And so then he offers one of the clearest declarations of who he is and why he has come. And this is a passage that we know and we memorize and we teach our children. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, gave his one and only son. God loves the world. He gives us his son. We've seen him identified by John as the Lamb of God. We've seen him as identified by God as his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this is the message that Jesus gives to Nicodemus as he questions whether or not he's the Messiah. And so this single verse describes so much. It it describes in the simplest forms the intersection between our lower story and our upper story. Remember, through this, this series, the story, we're talking about the lower story, which is our day-to-day lives, our, our, our day-to-day interactions, our struggles, our heartaches, our brokenness, and the upper story of God, and the intersection between those two, where we see in our, in our lower story our need for something, and in the upper story, God's solution to that. Randy Frazee describes it this way, we live down here in all the ordinary messiness of life that is limited by what we can see and experience firsthand, including what appears to be the final stop, death. But Jesus, Jesus who was up there, came down to defeat death for us so that we can live eternally with him. We don't have to slaughter and sacrifice animals. That was a temporary fix. We don't have to try harder to be good because that will never work due to our inherent sinfulness. All we have to do is believe. And so then on a trip to Samaria, Jesus finds this woman. And this woman is at a well and she is 
is trying to get this water, and, and Jesus has this conversation with the Samaritan woman. Two problems here, she's a woman and she's a Samaritan. And so this is not a conversation that is to be had, but Jesus has this conversation with her anyway. And he offers her living water. And that whoever drinks of this living water will never thirst. And so she invites others to come and see as well. She goes and testifies to what she's experienced, to what she's witnessed about Jesus. And she goes and brings others. And there were many in Samaria who believed because of her testimony and because of Jesus' interactions with them. And so we see here just this sequence of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing miracles. Jesus is healing people. Jesus is teaching. And it's best summarized in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over all, all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So this is what Jesus is up to. He is, he is traveling around and he is preaching the good news of the kingdom and he's healing people, he's driving out demons. And then Jesus appoints 12 of his followers to go and preach on his behalf and gave them the authority as well to go and cast out demons. And so wherever they went, they were proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. We've talked about the kingdom of God in, in past series and past lessons, thinking about what does he mean when he talks about the kingdom of God. And we're talking about the kingdom of God as something that is here, something that is now, something that we're called to participate in. The kingdom of God is the reign of God, the rule of God. And he's ruling here now. It's not just about getting to heaven. It's not just about a destination. It's not just about eternity. But it's about the here and now of what God is up to. And he's inviting us in to join him in his mission, inviting us to join in, in the work of the kingdom because God is active, God is doing something, and he is longing and desiring for his people to join in with what he's doing. And so there is an invitation here to become a part of the kingdom. That is the good news of the kingdom. The good news is that, that God is coming. God is here, and God is doing something. And the reality of God is manifesting itself among us. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's reign. We have seen God's attempt at a reign throughout the story, right? We start in, in Genesis with the, the story of, of Adam and Eve, and we go on through the stories of, of Abraham and, and Moses and the time in the desert and coming into the land and taking the land and the unfaithfulness of the people and the brokenness of the people and, and their desire for an earthly king and the earthly kings that were, oh, not so good, right? And the, and the, the kings lose the kingdom and the kingdom falls apart and the, the kingdom is torn apart and they go off into exile and the prophets are trying to speak truth into who, who these people are and what God wants for them. Jesus is the solution to that. Jesus comes in and, and becomes a part of that as a fulfillment of God's reign. He doesn't just send his prophets, he sends us his son. 
And so chapter 13 concludes with where it began. Or did I say 13? Chapter 23. Chapter 23. We're going to jump way back. Chapter 23 concludes where it began with John the Baptist. But this time John is in prison and John is doubting now whether or not everything that he has done has been in vain. I don't know if it's that his expectations of a Messiah have not been met. I don't know if it's the discouragement of, being, of having to suffer through a place that he doesn't want to be. I don't know what it is that causes him to doubt Jesus. But he wonders, Jesus, are you who you said you were? And he sends message to Jesus, are you who you say you are? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one? And Jesus responds, go back and report to John what you hear and see. This is what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And so Jesus, in response to John's question of, are you who you say you are? This is how he responds. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the care for the poor. You've seen leprosy cleansed. You've seen the renewal of people. You've seen the good news proclaimed. You've seen these things. This is evidence. This is evidence that I am who I say I am. Not that I have an army, not that I have a throne, not that I have some sort of palace to live in. Those are not the things that identify Jesus as the Messiah. And so there is chapter 23 in a mouthful, right? This, this ministry of Jesus that gets started. It starts with his baptism. It starts with with him going in and having a season of temptation and battling with Satan using the word of God and then entering into this ministry where he travels from town to town teaching and healing and, and exercising demons. This is the start of Jesus. This is the one we follow. And we see the examples of ones who are called to follow and drop everything and follow him. They drop everything. And so I have, I've got just a couple observations here as we read through. Just what do we see? The so what? There's, there's so much that we can jump into. So I, I was reflecting on this chapter and, and remembered that the, the week that I interviewed here, I think I, I, I told you we, were, we, we did Esther, and that was the week that I met with Carrie and Troy. I don't know if I shared that with you. So we were doing the story of Esther, and then I had this interview, and then a few weeks later, I came here and, and spent some time with the elders and, the, and, and their wives. And then I went back to Dallas and had to preach chapter 23 to my, my congregation there. It was my opportunity to preach, and the opportunity to preach about following Jesus wherever he calls you to go. Knowing that this interview process was going on, knowing that I had just received a job offer to go to another church, and I'm preaching here about following Jesus. And then I came back later and preached that same sermon here. And so the one sermon I had on file was the sermon for this week. And I had to rewrite everything. 
And so this, this chapter means a lot to me because it is about following Jesus. It is about following what he is calling us to. And that calls us into some uncomfortable places. It calls us into things that we may or may not want to do. It calls us to leave family. It calls us to leave friends. It calls us because Jesus is who he says he is. And we step out in faith to do the things that he has called us to do. And so a couple observations as we go through the story again. This story tells us the answer to who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? And the answer to that question is everything. Our ability to answer that question, who is Jesus? Is he just a nice guy? Is he just a teacher? Is he just a weirdo? Is he just a lunatic? Who is Jesus? Answering that question is everything. Because who he is defines who we are as followers of his. John recognizes who Jesus is and he testifies to who he is. He points the people away from himself and to Jesus. We do not point people to ourselves. We do not point people to Montgomery. We do not point people to a church. We point people to Jesus. We point people to Jesus. And the people that are around Jesus, they recognize him and they follow him because they know who he is. It isn't an intellectual pursuit. It's not a cultural pursuit. It's not an academic pursuit. It is a pursuit of Jesus. And the ones that were around him that didn't get it, it didn't fit their mold. But the people who recognize Jesus they recognize him because they have some sort of encounter with him. They experience him. They know him. They're transformed by him. So who is Jesus? Your answer to this question shapes everything. Who is he? Why did he come? This may be the reason why so many of us that have grown up in some sort of church experience struggle with what it means to be a disciple, with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We know who he is. We've gone through the Sunday school classes. We've read the books, but we lack a real experience with him. We know about him, and we've made steps in his directions, but we don't really know him. And so we struggle so often. This is my struggle. And I shared that when I first came here. My struggle is, do I love the church more than I love Jesus? I wrestle with that. Is, is, is my work here, is our gathering together here about the church? Is it about our relationships? Is it about our friendships? Or is it about Jesus? Because that's why we gather. That's what we are called to. I think about what the church is, and the church is the body of Christ. It's the physical manifestation of the risen Savior. And so if people come into our church, they are coming in and experiencing the body of Christ. They come in and have an encounter with who Jesus is. And so when people come into our midst, when we invite people in, what do they see? Do they see Jesus? Or do they see something else? Do they see a human institution? Do they see something that's legalistic? Do they see something that's dysfunctional? Do they see something that's petty? Or do they see Jesus? 
Because when they come in and experience what it is to be gathered together as the body of Christ, it better reflect Jesus and not something else. Christ's body is here with us. We can see it. We can touch it. We can experience it. We can encounter it. And so it's important for us to to check ourselves. Are we reflecting Jesus? Are we being the body of Christ? And so we reflect on that ourselves, and we check it ourselves. Are we who Jesus has called us to be? But then it is also a call for us to invite others to experience the body of Jesus, to experience and encounter him in a new and fresh way. We want to invite people to encounter him. When Andrew experienced and encountered Jesus, when Nathaniel encountered Jesus, they couldn't help but invite others to that experience. And so who are you going to invite to encounter Jesus? Who is it that you need to share that with? We have invite cards in in the foyer for this series, this this little mini-series on Jesus that is going to end on Easter weekend. Use these and invite somebody. We'll have invite cards next week specifically for our Easter weekend and and the the cookout and egg hunt that we'll have on Saturday and the, the services that we'll have on Sunday. Invite somebody. Be praying about who you need to share the love of Jesus with. Who needs to have an encounter with Jesus? Be praying about that. But the second thing I see when I look at this story is I see that we are called to be a kingdom people. This idea of kingdom shows up over and over. John's message is about the kingdom of God coming near. Jesus is, his message is about the kingdom as good news. The kingdom has arrived because of Jesus and it's not just some distant thing, it's, it's the here and now, and Jesus is inviting us to be a part of it. When you think about a kingdom, I think of, of movies from, from the, the, the medieval times where there's these great castles and these great battles, or, or maybe you think of something like Lord of the Rings and, and all the imagery that comes to that when you think about kingdom and what it means to be a part of a kingdom. There's an energy there. there. There is an excitement there. There is a passion. There is a battle being waged. There is a war being waged. It's not simply sitting passively in a pew. It's about the battle of the kingdom. Because we are in God's kingdom, but this is a kingdom that is at war. It's a kingdom that's at war, and it's a kingdom that's under attack. And we are called to rise up in defense of the kingdom. But the kingdom is not just about being the moral police. It's about bringing the good news of God to the people around us. Jesus doesn't come in and establish a kingdom of law. He doesn't come in and establish a a kingdom of rules. Not a kingdom of formality. He comes in and establishes a kingdom that cares for the very least. A kingdom that comes in and cares for the poor. A kingdom that wants to see healing. A kingdom that wants to see restoration. A kingdom that wants to see renewal. It's a kingdom that's completely flipped upside down. And so you think of the images of the movie with some great king on a throne and this great army, and Jesus is not that kind of king. Jesus completely flips it over, and we are in a kingdom that is called to something completely different. 
We're a kingdom that's called to be a place of grace, a, grace, a place of mercy. Just like Jesus' first disciples, we find it hard to get a real clear look at Jesus' kingdom agenda because of our own preoccupations with the things that are in our lives. We get preoccupied with our own selfishness, our own desires, our own will, our own, our own preconceptions of what a kingdom should be. Our preconceptions and assumptions of what a church should be. And we lose sight of God's kingdom agenda. Because we get hung up on what's going on in a church. We get hung up what's going on in, in some relationship across the pew. We get hung up on what the other churches think about what we're doing. We get hung up on our own fears of, of walking into a neighborhood that may look different than ours. Interacting with people who may look different than us. We get hung up on those preoccupations and then we lose sight of God's agenda. There's a kingdom agenda here that Jesus comes and very clearly lays out to us and somehow we end up ignoring it. Our selfishness and our biases get in the way. And so we invent and design some sort of kingdom of our own, a kingdom to our own likings, and it's not what God is doing. It's not what he's up to. And so we look at things like the American dream, a dream for education, a dream for home ownership, a dream for career, and a really comfortable retirement with lots of golf. And we look at that American dream. That is not God's dream for his kingdom. It is not his dream. And so the things of our culture, the things that our culture values, those are not the things that Jesus values. And as followers of his, we are in this continual process of, of realizing the things that I hold on to for myself and the things God is calling me to. And it's a daily struggle to say, am I going to do this thing that I want or am I going to do what God is calling me to do? Every day I wake up with that struggle. And every day I enter into a battle with Satan and using the truths of Scripture to say, what is it that God is calling me to today? Is it this comfortable place? Is it the things that I want? Or is it the things that God is calling me to? And each of us are on this journey as disciples of his, as followers of his, evaluating who he is and who we are and how we're transformed to be more like him. And so this is Jesus' ministry. This is him coming to earth as a weak baby, coming in with no fanfare, this, this crazy lunatic out in the desert who says, this is the Lamb of God. And this is our example. And this is the one we follow as Christians, as disciples of his. This is the example that we look at. This is the one we aspire to be like. And by the grace of God, we make steps, incremental steps, sometimes really small steps and sometimes big leaps backwards, but we make these steps toward Jesus, to fo toward following him and being more like him. And as a community of faith, we help each other with that and we hold each other accountable to that and we encourage one another in that. And so we're going to spend some time in prayer and spend some time sharing with one another. So let's go ahead and, and be standing. I ask the question, what is God saying to you? 
As, as you go through the story, as you read the text, as you, as you experience and encounter Jesus through this process, what is he saying to you? What is he calling you to? What is that incremental step that he's asking you to do? Maybe it's giving up something. Maybe it's changing something. Maybe it's, it's, it's adjusting something in your life to make that step closer to Jesus. What is it that he's calling you to do? And then what is something tangible that you're going to do to take action on that? What are you going to do about it? What do you need to do this week to make that step forward? Is it an appointment that needs to be made? Is it a conversation that needs to be had? Is it a prayer that needs to be prayed? What steps can you take this week to make that step toward Jesus? We're going to have shepherds down front and in the back. You can pray in your small groups with one another. You can go seek out the, maybe a, a, a teacher or a counselor or, or someone you respect across the room. This is an opportunity for us to, to move about and pray with one another and encourage one another. Because this is, this is a challenging thing. Jesus really challenges us. He raises the bar for us. And so we need each other to strengthen one another. So find somebody to pray with and, and share some of the things that, that God might be speaking to you about. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his example. We thank you for, for the life that he lived. God, I pray that, that we will see in our own lives the areas where we can take steps closer to you. And so God, we, we humbly bow before you and, and submit ourselves to you. God, show us how we can become more like you. God, encourage us, strengthen us as we make these evaluations of ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.